So, Mark. Yes? Tomorrow in the United States is Election Day. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now, hopefully a lot of people have already voted because we should be safe. Hopefully everyone should have sent in an early ballot or done what they can to prepare. Hopefully you sent in your ballot over a month ago. But if you haven't, today or tomorrow, make sure you vote. But in the spirit of that, I was wondering what your favorite election-themed movie is. I mean, it's not about an American election, but I think Election is definitely my favorite election movie. Hey, that's set in the U.S. It is very strange, but Reese Witherspoon is giving just an incredible performance in that movie. Tracy Flick is a fascinating character, not just in the movie, but when you sort of imagine her path beyond that, which the movie hints at in its epilogue, but like thinking about where Tracy Flick would be today. Right. Tracy Flick holds a weird position in our pop culture at large, too. I see her referenced every so often on Twitter about movies where there's like a no real villain villain. Well, I think Matthew Broderick is the villain of the election. Yeah. That movie is so weird, and the relationship between a teacher and a student. Talk about bad. I'm told that it's much weirder in the book. Well, I mean, you would probably have to tone it down to make a movie about it. Yeah. Yeah, Election's a good one. I mean, I love all the dynamics of the different candidates and all the reasons that they get involved in this student council race, in which Tracy Flick is clearly the candidate best suited to do the job, but because Matthew Broderick, as the moderator of the student government, finds her annoying, he's doing everything he can to sabotage her. Right. And it's just so strange why he finds her so annoying, because it so clearly becomes a weird sexual thing in the end. That is definitely part of it. And I think part of it, too, is uh, his sort of understandable frustration with a person who takes a largely powerless organization far too seriously. I mean, that is a vibe I carried into Georgetown, I gotta say. She'll fit in very well there. It's the kind of thing where, like, I can understand, like, as a teacher, like, this is a particular kind of thing that can be quite annoying, but he takes his reaction too far and also has some other ugly things under the surface. Right. It's a very interesting movie, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. Yeah, it's a good one. I love the cover for the Criterion Blu-ray of Election, which is just a hand holding up a cupcake that says Pick Flick. That is a great cover. My favorite election movie is actually also from that 90s black comedy surge that we got in the wake of movies like Fargo. Uh, And that's a movie called Wag the Dog. Have you seen that one? I have not. I've heard of it. So Wag the Dog is very much a Clinton era black comedy in that it is about a president who is like weeks away from facing re-election and a sex scandal breaks. And so his team brings in a fixer played by Robert De Niro to try to basically distract the public from this sex scandal. And so what Robert De Niro does is he hires a Hollywood producer played by Dustin Hoffman to fake a war on television. So they like hire actors, they get a special effects team, and they just like fake footage of a war that they can ship off to the network so they'll broadcast it, talk about all this stuff. They bring in Willie Nelson to write new patriotic songs to raise support for the war effort. And it's just this ever-escalating series of lies trying to keep the public focused and to increase the president's popularity before the election. Oh my god, that sounds incredible. It's hilarious. Dennis Leary plays the fad king who just comes up with fad ads so like he inv- he comes up with like some armbands that people get really into remember silly bands they hire kirsten dunst to play a refugee and she's like arguing with de niro about whether or not it can appear on her list of credits <laughs> oh my god we have to watch this maybe not for the oh, show but rules. just in general i cannot recommend it highly enough 
Oh my god. But this week we're talking about a movie completely unrelated to elections in general. I do want to circle back to your thing and say, yes, I do remember Silly Bands. They're super weird. That's one of the weirdest fads of our lifetime. I was teaching when Silly Bands became really popular. They were everywhere. I was definitely too old, but for a while I would talk to someone even like two years younger than me and it was all about Silly Bands. Look, Mark, it looked like a rhinoceros. It was just a rubber band. It was just a rubber band. Because people would wear them around their wrists where you can't even see the shape. You're just wearing a rubber band on your wrist. But you take it off and it's a hockey player. Oh my god. So silly. So bands. Ugh. Go vote and welcome to We Love the Love. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining the least important question of our day. (laughs) Yes. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will take a look and see what is there. And this week, we are returning to the rom-com genre with a largely forgotten gem, 1990s Joe vs. the Volcano. This movie was a lot more literal with volcanoes than I thought. That was also my reaction the first time I saw it. I just assumed the volcano would be metaphorical. Me too! But it's so much better that it's not! (laughs) It's so weird. This movie is strange. I have been watching a lot of movies since I started quarantining back in March. And I've watched a lot of good movies. I watched some bad movies. I feel like I've watched fewer bad movies than I do in a normal year because I'm not like hosting bad movie nights or going to see things in theaters that aren't good. But there have been a handful of movies that I've watched and I'm like, maybe this is one of my top five movies now. One of them is True Grit and the other one is Joe versus the Volcano. I don't know if I would put it that high on my list. I enjoyed it. I'm not saying it's the best movie I've ever seen. I think it's one of my favorites. I enjoyed it, but it was also just like, I don't know. Anytime the South Pacific comes up in a movie, I always get scared and I'm always proven right, to be honest. This one is trickier. It is, because they throw in that weird thing where they're just trying to justify why they hired white people to be in the South Pacific. I don't think this happened after they cast it. I think the weird basis of the uh, Waponi culture was in the script. That's fair. Because I think that matches the tone of the rest of this movie. Was one of them Nathan Lane? Yeah, he's one of the leaders. I was just like, what is going on? And that's a Nathan Lane who's not that famous yet. It's before The Lion King. It's before The Producers. And before Birdcage? The Birdcage. Yes. Okay, it was. What year was this? 1990. Oh, this is early. Yeah, so this movie is written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, who, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize for his play Doubt. But... In this window, he is three years removed from having won an Oscar for writing the screenplay of Moonstruck. And I think this is a movie that has a lot of Moonstruck in its DNA. Yes, it's definitely closer, more closely related to that than Doubt. (laughs) What a fascinating man. He's a weird guy, right? And actually, this movie is a, a famous flop. And it's not even, like, that much of a disaster. Like, Warner Brothers made its money back, but just didn't really turn a profit. But this movie gets such a reputation as a flop that Shanley doesn't direct another movie until he directs the film adaptation of Doubt in 2008. That's a long time. (laughs) Wow. This movie was, like, I didn't know it did that badly. Again, it... 
it actually wasn't a like huge disaster. It cost $25 million to make and it made about 40. So even when you factor in advertising and stuff like that, like nobody took a bath on this movie. I guess, especially because towards the end of the 80s, you would expect to make a lot more than that with the way rom-coms have been going. So I could see why it was considered kind of a failure. Except that like, we're not in the like post-sleepless in Seattle era where like things are making $200 million regularly. Like this is the year after when Harry met Sally. It's the same year as Pretty Woman. Like this is when it's just really starting to explode. Right. But didn't Moonstruck make a lot of money too? Moonstruck did make a lot of money. Yeah. Like, you know, when Harry Met Sally made $92 million, and I'm not saying they were expecting to get a $200 million movie, but $40 million after, you know, Moonstruck and When Harry Met Sally definitely feels... I can understand why they considered it to be more of a failure, but I also don't get why he quit directing, because it's not that bad. Well, I don't think it's a quit so much as that he did not get further opportunities to direct and went back to being kind of a writer for hire, where he's like writing Michael Crichton adaptations. Did he write Congo? He did write Congo. Oh god, that movie is strange. I have never seen it, and I also read a lot of Michael Crichton when I was in high school, but I never read Congo. So I know it pretty much entirely from the episode of AP Bio, where Patton Oswalt gets really insistent on theming the school's dance around the movie Congo. I read Congo and watched the movie, and it's about archaeologists hunting for the lost mines of Solomon in the heart of the Central African rainforest, where they come across super intelligent white gorillas that kill everyone to protect the mine. Here's the thing. Michael Crichton often loony, also often pretty fun. Yeah, it's a fun book. There's all of the Michael Crichton-ness of it where people are just going on an adventure and then dying. But also, I think there's like an implication that Solomon bred these gorillas to protect the mine or something. Like, it's weird. So it's like... A Michael Crichton book meets a Dan Brown book. Right, and they bring along, you know, the book's version of Coco the Gorilla, who then talks to the gorillas and, like, stops the gorilla from killing the people she knows. Is it good? It was a fast read, if nothing else. (laughs) Okay. It's, It's interesting. But yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing where, like, John Patrick Shanley, I think, probably gets the opportunity to direct this movie off of the success of Moonstruck. Right. But then this movie is seen as a flop, and he's back into writing for theater and occasionally for the screen. Had he written Doubt at this point? How no, old Doubt is the play? the 2000s. Okay. I didn't know how old the play was. No, it gets adapted pretty quickly. What a cast in that movie. I haven't seen it. Neither have I. But it's like Meryl Streep, Amy Adams, and Viola Davis, I think. And Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've only seen the Georgetown play version. In specifically like 2014 college students. Mm-hmm. Yep. Me too. <laughs> That's all I know about it. So it's also worth talking about. We've got John Patrick Shanley. We've got Meg Ryan, like we said, a year after when Harry met Sally. And we've got Tom Hanks kind of at the peak of like Hanks star of 80s comedies we talked about the beginning of that three years ago when we talked about splash still to this date the only movie we both fell asleep during i've been re-watching a lot of these 80s comedies like uh i watched money pit recently and i feel like i should return to splash just to give it another shot where i watched the whole movie i think you would probably enjoy it more i don't think i fell asleep because it was bad it was more because we were watching it like 10 30 p.m after a long day yeah no i think that that is true Yeah. But so for Hanks, this is two years after he gets an Oscar nomination for Big. It's the year after movies like The Burbs and Turner and Hooch, which 
kind of have a mixed reception, but make some money. So this really is kind of the tail end of Hank's the big comedy star. It's the same year that he's in Bonfire of the Vanities, which is largely seen as a disaster, but is also the beginning of his pivot more into dramas. When did he stop doing comedy? You know, hard to say. I mean, he continues to do them sporadically through the 90s. He has the two Nora Ephron rom-coms, Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. Of course, like the Toy Story movies fit into there, which are largely comic performances. And then in 2000, he gets his Oscar nomination again for Castaway. But like, that's a movie that's got kind of a melancholy atmosphere underneath its comedy. Right. I can't think of a like pure comedy he's done in the 21st century. Like the closest thing is Saving Mr. Banks, maybe? Yeah, I did not watch that one. I didn't really see the appeal. It's all right. Isn't he playing Walt Disney in that? He is. He is the only person to portray Walt Disney in in a film. I mean, if you're going to cast someone, unless you're making a movie focusing specifically on the dark side of Disney, then you probably don't want to cast Tom Hanks. Yeah. It is interesting how, like, Tom Hanks increasingly just, and I think we've talked about this before, just, like, plays people who are really good at their job. Yeah, he's becoming the go-to dad movie actor. Right. So, like, he was Walt Disney. He was Sully Sullenberger. He was Captain Phillips. He was the lawyer in Bridge of Spies. Mr. Rogers. And now he's going to be on a boat. Submarine? Uh, Are you talking about Greyhound or something else? Greyhound. Is that a submarine? It's a submarine. Oh, okay. Here's the thing. I've heard two things about Greyhound. One, I've heard it's pretty good. Two, it's under 90 minutes. Whoa. I'm into that. I'm a little bummed that it's not about Tom Hanks just being a nice bus driver. Well, for that, you can still watch Patterson and see Adam Driver do it. Yeah. I mean, just picture a movie where Tom Hanks is a happy-go-lucky bus driver for Greyhound driving people across America. To be fair, last year you did see him run a small trolley system. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Similar ideas. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch Greyhound. I just still, as of recording, have not signed up for Apple TV+. Oh, is that an Apple TV Plus movie too? Yeah. That would explain the lack of things I have seen about Greyhound. So one of these days I will sign up and watch that in Boys State and then promptly cancel. Because I think I can live without seeing The Morning Show. What about Servant, the M. Night Shyamalan TV show? Look, I'm rooting for M. Night to have a hit, but an Apple TV Plus show ain't it. It's definitely the streaming service that gets the least amount of attention well it also had like a terrible rollout i know a lot of streaming services have had terrible rollouts we've talked a lot on this show about hbo max and our beloved peacock but apple tv plus didn't even bother to tell people when it was coming out or what it would cost until like two weeks ahead of time yeah they tried to like iphone it but there was definitely not enough buildup already around it for them to try and do the iphone rollout right I have been kicking myself a lot because I have an iPad for work. And as part of getting a new one last year, they were like, you can sign up for Apple TV Plus for free for a year. And I was like, there's nothing on there that I want. And now I'm like, I kind of want to watch Boys State. Yeah, I feel like I try and take advantage of free trials as much as possible. I have four email addresses for me to continue using free trials of WoW Plus, like wow presents plus or whatever it's called to watch canada's drag race for free i don't even know what wow is it's the production company that makes rupaul's drag race and all other properties related and that is it and somehow they have their own streaming service all right now circling back to joe versus the volcano. ah yes (laughs) the movie we're discussing my beloved joe versus the volcano I think one of the things that is striking for me in particular is the beginning of the movie. When you just get the vision of this factory and the blues kicks in right away. It's so modern times. It's very modern times. I think it's also noteworthy that the production design of this movie 
is by Bo Welch, and the costumes are by, by Colleen Atwood, both in the window where they're designing a lot of Tim Burton's movies. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so like they were both nominated for BAFTAs this same year in 1990 for their work on Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> that definitely tracks, especially at the beginning of the movie. Right, this movie has like some weird, surreal sensibilities, and it starts off with the Once Upon a Time, and it ends calling back to that. So it is clear from the beginning, you should not take this movie literally. No, that is very true. And you've got this hulking, horrible factory, home of the rectal probe. And then similarly throughout the movie, you get all of these, like, I think really fantastic sets that are clearly not quite real. Like, he's on the boat with Patricia. There's a whole row of sunflowers growing, which doesn't make any sense, but it looks really nice. Right. I love, and obviously this won't translate to the podcast, but they all make the same hand gesture when they say brain shadow, where they like <laughs> take cloud. their hand, brain cloud, where they just like draw a line down their head every time someone and says what's it. what's great about it is like, it indicates that like, yes, of course, it's a brain cloud. We all know there's a cloud between the hemispheres of your brain that will slowly kill you. Right. And the, it's great because the movie's so surreal that you buy into the idea of the brain cloud. So I didn't really see that it was fake coming, to be honest. Right! <laughs> because it just fits the movie so well. It's a brain cloud, of course. And just even the ways that, like, that symbol of the lightning bolt or the lava or whatever it is keeps recurring where it's the pathway that they have to walk up to the factory. Because, of course, this company is so soulless that it would rather have their logo be a walkway than have a walkway that makes any sense for a human being. Like, from the drop, we are just told at first how dreadful Joe's life is, and in other moments, like, how glorious. Like, again, this is coming off of Moonstruck, but that big moon scene, which is just so wonderful. Yeah. I also never fully understood what his job was. He's in charge of the archives for the company. Okay, because it was just like, they kept talking about catalogs, and like, it's like, is he making the catalogs? He's in charge of, like, all of the company's records, which includes when somebody needs to access their catalog, he also is in charge of making sure that they have it. Okay, that makes sense. Because Dan Hedaya, his boss, is talking about how, like, how grateful Joe should be for the job. He's like, look, I put you in charge of the library. You get to do whatever you want with all the stuff in here. <laughs> That was such a good line. That's an incredible performance. This is one of the most dismal factory offices in film history, and there's a lot of competition. So I read an interview that John Patrick Shanley did with Matt Zoller Seitz for this movie's 25th anniversary. And Shanley said that this was based on an actual factory that he worked in when he was 18 that primarily made catheters. But the first day he went to work, he like opened his desk and there are these like oval things rolling around in it. And he said, what are these? And somebody said, oh, those are discontinued artificial testicles. And he was like, why were they discontinued? And the person said, because they clacked when you moved. Uh, 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 no. God. Oh, look. look. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my God. No. So this factory is based on a very particular experience of Shanley's. Yeah, I can tell. Oh boy. Wow. Because that's the real part. Like, that is worse than any of the factory things in the weird, surreal movie that he made. I do like the tubes shunting out the petroleum jelly. It just looks gross. Yeah, petroleum jelly is gross in general, even though I use it. Shanley did also say that 
next to his desk, there was a giant pipe with a giant valve that said, do not touch, and he always wanted to. Yeah, we all always want to touch anything that says do not touch. That was one of the most relatable parts of Joe, where one of his first things he does when cutting loose is just turn a big wheel that says do not turn. But I think one of the things that I so appreciate about this movie is its surrealism and the way that it goes for the extremes that obviously it's not literal but often you have the sense that to some extent what we are seeing is not necessarily really there so much as it's a reflection of what joe is seeing and feeling the factory is so miserable in part because joe is so miserable and then that night when he goes on the date with Dee, you can see the city coming alive literally with color there's that wonderful shot of them on the boat with the cityscape behind them all lit up in different colors mm-hmm And, like, all of those versions of it returning through where, like, when he is sort of overwhelmed by L.A., things are a little bit more chaotic. Whereas when he is on the raft, it is at times horrible and at times glorious. Right. And it's definitely all, it is all a reflection of Joe's head, like this movie, where there is not a brain cloud. (laughs) We should also mention this movie is produced by Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. It's an Amblin movie. And Shanley has talked a lot about how Spielberg put a lot of effort into protecting the movie and its weirder elements from interference by Warner Brothers. Speaking of Frank Marshall, though, he is the director of the film adaptation of Congo by Michael Crichton. No way! Yeah. (laughs) Do we have to do Congo now? (laughs) I think we kind of have to do Congo. It stars Laura Liddy, and it has Tim Curry as the villain. All right, we're doing... I'm putting it on the list. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think what... The big thing for me about this movie is that it is striking such a particular bizarre tone and exulting in it while also managing to be quite lovely. Like, it is a deeply romantic movie while also being quite bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, even in all of her roles. Here's the thing. I think this is the best of the three movies that they're in together. I have not watched You've Got Mail yet, which is the one people say I think is the best. So I need to watch that and then I will make my definitive ranking. Because I rewatched all of Nora Ephron's films last summer and my girlfriend and I decided that while we were seeing both Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, we would also like throw in the third of them and watch Joe vs. the Volcano and we kind of had no expectations going in and I think it's kind of incredible. My problem with Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail both of them, is that I think they're really good at the comedy half of rom-com, but the behavior by the couples is either alarming or mean to the point that it's hard to get on board. Yeah, that makes sense. Having been involved in a production of a musical based off of the same play that You've Got Mail is based off of, there's definitely that element of, these people should not end up together. And I think it's stronger in You've Got Mail than it is in She Loves Me. Hmm. Anyway, should we start talking about the romance? Because it really is the heart of the movie. Let's do it. All right, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of the movie into five points to guide our conversation, keep us from going off on tangents, such as a long discussion of the film Congo. (laughs) So, Will, why don't you take us to point one? All right, the important thing to address in this movie is that, as we said, it is a Tom Hanks-Meg Ryan pairing. Over the course of the five points, we're going to talk about Hanks dating three women, or... Hanks interacting with three women, all of whom are played by Meg Ryan. I cannot wait to talk about her second performance. Oh, do you think Angelica gets to say things in fun (laughs) ways? What was that accent? I'm obsessed. It was great, is what it was. (laughs) I love it when, like, they've barely met, and 
we have a faraway shot of them going in the car through LA and she's like, look at this town and you can't see her, but in your head, you can see Meg Ryan chewing on that line. You also, they zoom out and you can't really see LA in that shot either. Which is what's funny about it. Yeah. Incredible. Pretty much all of this movie was shot in LA. They filmed the factory there. A lot of the shopping stuff is around Rodeo Drive. And most of the stuff in the water was shot in these like enormous tanks at MGM Studios. Hmm. The island stuff was in Hawaii. Yeah, it usually is. All right, so point number one, we've got Hanks at his job, the home of the rectal probe, and we're going to be looking at his relationship with his co-worker, Dee Dee, played by Meg Ryan. <laughs> oh, Dee Dee. In the beginning, I was full of, you know, piss and vinegar. Nothing got me down. I, I wanted to know. You wanted to know what? Everything. But then I had some experiences. I was talking to this guy today, and he says that I got scared. Dee Dee is just like this mousy, I think she's a receptionist, in this terrible basement office. It's like the least glamorous Meg Ryan has ever looked in a movie. She's got this awful brown wig on. And she just like has this constant sense of jumpiness about her. Right. So she seems to kind of like him. At one point early on, she comes into Hanks' office and gives him like, hey, we need these magazines. Asks why he lets Mr. Waturi, Dan Hedaya, treat him badly. And then eventually, after Joe gets diagnosed with his brain cloud... Uh, Mark and I are doing the brain cloud motion every time we say it, just for any listeners who have seen the movie. Right. To be clear, Hanks is a hypochondriac who always feels terrible in a lot of ways, and he goes to see a doctor to find out what's wrong. And he is told that, one, he's a hypochondriac who, during his previous career as a firefighter, had so many brushes with death that now he constantly feels it close. But then, unrelated to that, he has a brain cloud... (laughs) That will kill him within six months. Oh, and his hypochondria is gross to look at. Yeah, I mean, Hanks looks gross early in this movie. He's also got terrible long hair. Oh, it's so bad. It's tough to watch that long hair. Like I said, I had already watched it this summer, and still, my girlfriend was like, he's gonna get a haircut in this movie, right? So, after the doctor tells him to live the best life he can, the first thing he does is yell at his boss. The second thing is he turns the do not turn knob. And nothing happens, which is infuriating. Oh, I know. And the third thing he does is ask Dee Dee on a date. In the process of quitting, he quits his job, walks out, immediately walks back in, gives a whole speech where he's yelling at his boss, and his boss is like, don't you know there's a woman present? And he's like, of course I know there's a woman present. It's like the only thing I'm conscious of. Right. Like, he has been dead in this underground tomb, except that he is aware of Dee Dee's, like, presence and sound and smell. And he says, how about dinner tonight? And she says, yeah, okay. I don't know if I would have said yes there. I think she's just completely taken aback by what is happening. And it's clear on their date, too, that, like, she is into him, but she's also just kind of alarmed by what she's looking at. Well, yeah, because he's not exactly acting normal on the date. Right. They go to this restaurant, and she is... Like, a little scared, but she's like, you know, what changed in you? What's going on? And he doesn't tell her at first. No, which makes sense. Yes, of course. You don't want to be like, well, I found out I'm dying, so I asked you on a date. Which, you know, when he eventually does say that after she comes over, it doesn't go great. So he probably made the right call. Yeah, but you can see him starting to embrace life. And one of the things that's interesting is there is a version of this where if Dee Dee is not put off, 
by his revelation that he is dying, Joe Banks probably finds a certain degree of fulfillment just in New York with Dee Dee. Right. Because he's getting some of these like cheerful behaviors and he pays the band to come over and sing a song so that our hearts will swell and burst. Like it's some of that attitude that he'll have at the end of the movie. Right. And I think you already start to see him looking a little better in terms of like complexion at this point too. Right. Because his impending death has focused him. Yeah. His brain is off of creating the psychosomatic symptoms on his face and stuff i gotta say i brought up the swell and burst thing it is again very moonstrucky i love how like theatrical a lot of the language in this movie is it is heightened just like the story is heightened oh very much so it is definitely like not even stage play it's like musical language yeah uh which is something we'll talk about more later oh of course but they go on their date and then he brings her back to his apartment and tells her He's dying, and then she leaves. As they're making out. As they're making out. And then he tries to get her to stay, but eventually she goes, and he just goes to bed. And the next day he wakes up, and he is fairly depressed once more, just sitting around. <laughs> Until an eccentric billionaire comes to the door. Lloyd Bridges walks into his apartment, and is like, Hello, you're a hero, you're gonna die. I run a superconductor company. And I need this mineral from the island of Waponi Wu, which means little island with a big volcano. Which I assume is unobtainium. Yes, it's basically, he needs unobtainium. They do give a name, but I don't remember what it was. I don't either. But the Waponi don't need anything that he has, actually quite similarly to the unobtainium situation. So what they do need is, according to their tradition, every hundred years, someone has to pitch themselves into the volcano to appease the god of the volcano. And nobody wants to do it. So he's like, look. You've got six months to live. I will let you live luxuriously for the next couple of weeks. And then you jump in the volcano and they give me the mineral rights. <laughs> A plan that works out for everyone. An incredible premise. Oh, it's so strange. And the guy, the first thing... The first thing that he does when he walks into his apartment is punch a hole in the wall with his cane. Because the apartment's terrible, and Lloyd Bridges just needs to really emphasize that so that Joe agrees to do it. Right. He's really laying it on thick how bad his life is. Joe agrees to do it. He takes these credit cards, and he hires a limo driven by Ossie Davis to drive him around so he can buy stuff. I was so happy to see Ossie Davis again. He's always great. He just out he's of the so blue. He's so good in this movie. I know. He's so good. I like it when he lectures Joe about... <laughs> How, he, you know, I don't want to tell you how to buy clothes. I don't know who you are. I spent all my life figuring out who I am. Right. And how important clothes are to him in particular, too. But Ossie Davis does Joe a lot of big favors, helping him buy clothes. He does us a favor, getting Joe a haircut. And most importantly, he encourages Joe to be extravagant enough to the point that Joe buys preposterously expensive luggage. Just so much of it, too. But he basically buys out all of Armani, so it makes sense. The luggage salesman is played by Barry McGovern, who's an Irish actor. And the way he says, after Joe asked for four of those steamer trunks, may you live to be a thousand years old, I screamed. It was so good. And those trunks are unbelievably cool. Yeah, they're so cool. Don't know that I need four of them. Don't, well, you do. As we'll see later, it is very helpful that there are four and that they interlock pretty easily. Yeah. So anyway, that's all going on. Joe buys a lot of nice stuff. He also buys some goofy clothes. And some tuxedo. really nice clothes, too. Yeah. Nice mix. He buys the, the little putt-putt layout, a violin case full of booze. And then he tries to get Marshall to have dinner with him. But Marshall's like, remember, I have a family. I am not your personal butler. Goodbye. And then he leaves. And then he leaves. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah, because he's not actually there to 
you know, revolutionize Joe's life. Yeah, he's there to get him some nice clothes. So the next day, Joe flies out to Los Angeles, which brings us to point two, because he meets Lloyd Bridges' daughter, Angelica, who is, who is a Fliberty Gibbet. A Fliberty Gibbet. And is played by Meg Ryan. I don't know how she kept that voice up so long, because it is the most absurd accent that you could do. I'm a do. painter and a poet. She's a Fliberty Gibbet. And the sign she's carrying that long says ago, Joe Banks on it. The delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hand. So bizarre. Daddy told me to tell you that I don't know what he hired you for and not to tell me. That I'm totally untrustworthy. I'm a flibber to gibbet. Come on. Let's get out of here. She is a, a deeply weird person who decides to show Joe the wonders of Los Angeles. Right, so they drive around. Joe gets overwhelmed by the city, even though he has not seen it yet. And after going to a restaurant where her own painting is hanging up because it's her father's restaurant, they go and park on a ridge and sort of have a heart-to-heart. It's like a little bit romantic, but I'd say Angelica is probably the least of the romance moments in the movie. It is the only one that's not explicitly romantic. Right. She does talk about a sense of aimlessness in her own life because this movie is in a lot of ways about what it means to be alive. And Angelica feels like her life is kind of pointless. She just lives off her father. She's never left Los Angeles. And Joe says, well, do the thing that you're scared of. You should leave. But then she is like, don't tell me what to do, which I also appreciated. (laughs) It's great. She drives him back to the hotel and offers to come up, but he says no. Right. Which is the good and right thing to do because she has been vulnerable and doesn't need that. Exactly. And then the next day she brings him to meet her half-sister, Patricia, who is actually Meg Ryan. Actually Meg Ryan, but possibly like the greatest version of baseline Meg Ryan. Right. Her hair is amazing as Patricia. It's unbelievable. And this is, again, a year after when Harry met Sally, when Meg Ryan has some hair highs and some real hair lows. Right. And Patricia is the highest of hair highs. Right. It's the longest hair I think she has, at least in terms of straight hair. And it is so much better than Kate and Leopold 90s Bob. Mark, I gotta tell you, Kate and Leopold is like 2002. I know, but that doesn't mean it's not like a 90s Bob. That is true. That transition era of fashion and hair, one of the lowest of the lows. I think the worst Meg Ryan hair is in Hanging Up, which is a Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron script directed by Diane Keaton. Uh, Is it good? No, it's quite bad. It's Honestly, it's more boring than anything else. Oh, that's the worst sin a movie can commit. Yeah. But the introduction of Patricia brings us to point three. I don't know what your situation is, but I wanted you to know what mine is. Not just to explain some rude behavior, but because we're on a little boat for a while and I'm soul sick. And you're going to see that. She is there to sail him to, what is it called? Wapiti Woo? Waponi Woo. Waponi Woo. You know, little island with a big volcano. And so they're on this gorgeous yacht. And at first on the dock, her relationship with Angelica is very bad. Her relationship with Angelica is kind of weird. Right. Clearly they both have issues with their father. Right. Which is clear. And we know that from Angelica saying that she isn't entirely comfortable with the way she lives off of their father. Patricia largely expresses this by being rude to Joe at first, where she insists on calling him Felix because she does whatever she wants. <laughs> that was one of the weirdest things. I just didn't get it. She's just like, I do whatever I want, so I don't believe in calling people by their own names. But that night, like the first night on the ship, she comes into his cabin and apologizes for being obnoxious. 
asks him if he had sex with Angelica. And basically she says, like, I don't like my father. I don't want to be associated with him. But he offered me this boat if I do this for him. Because he has to do it. And so she says, like, she is upset with herself for having learned that she had a price and is taking it out on Joe. Right. Which I get. And what I like about that. Yeah, I get it. It is understandable. I would do it. She is also self-aware. And having had this realization, she then stops. Yeah. I would do anything for that boat. It's a great boat. She has the Tweedledee, right? Or does she have the Tweedledum? I I think it's the Tweedledee. Yeah. But also it has sunflowers growing on it. It makes no sense. It's wonderful, but it's also got these colors. This movie has so many good colors, Mark. When they're sailing at night and it's just like deep blue or they've got the lanterns. Very good color movie. I'm bored of movies that don't have good colors. We don't need any more washed out, dark and gritty anything. Now is the time for color. And so was 1990 when Joe vs. the Volcano came out. I mean, you get a lot of color even in kind of more upsetting movies at the time, too, which I appreciate. But they bond on the boat. They're having a nice bonding on the boat. She talks about being soul sick, which is a wonderful phrase, and her plan to take the boat to sail away from the things of man. Which is interesting because she definitely needs a crew for this boat. So I am curious what her plan is to pay them. I'm sure she has some chunk of change that she has already secured. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. But it's around this time that he confesses to her and says, like, here's what's going down. I'm dying and I'm going to jump into a volcano. I do have to say, if I was dying, well, one, I would get a second opinion, which will come up later. But two, I would be interested in jumping in a volcano. Yeah. It sounds like a cool way to go out. It's the kind of thing that you, by definition, can only do once. Right. But a cool way to go out. Yeah. Definitely not the worst way. I mean, it might be very painful and you might regret it instantly. But the story will live long, on. Though. Yeah, that's also true. The story will like, live on. You wouldn't on. even reach magma. You would just incinerate from the air. And then blow away on the wind. Yeah, it's the earthbound version of my plan to, after I die, be launched into the sun. That would be a lot of money for not a lot of payoff. Well, the plan is that rocket fuel will be cheaper then. <laughs> the idea is that it will be much easier to get to the sun. Right. That's my plan. I am going to allow the sun to burn for a microsecond longer after my death. I don't know if that's how that works. It's probably not how it doesn't work. You're not mostly hydrogen, which is what the sun burns. I've got some of it. You do have some. Gotta give back, Mark. (laughs) Gotta give back to the giver of life, the sun. That's right. And right around this time in the movie, a storm hits, and they're trying to save the boat. But also, in the midst of the storm, she's taking command. She wants to save her boat. And they have a great kiss in the rain, and she's wearing a cute raincoat. Yeah, but then there's a typhoon, and she falls off the boat, so Joe jumps after her, but then the boat sinks. Yeah, it gets struck by a lightning bolt that looks just like the corporate logo. R.I.P. to the Tweedledee. So this brings us to point number four. Joe manages to lasso two of his steamer trunks together to make quite a hefty raft for them to live on. Oh, it's all four of them. Yeah, using the rope that Patricia had been planning to use to fix the boom. And then he sets up a little tarp for her, and then they just kind of sail. And she's unconscious. Yeah, she's knocked out. He is every day feeding her like a cap full of seltzer from his violin case booze set. Be heel, heel, cowboy, 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 under the moon. I was riding my horse by the Rio Grande. And all of them coyotes singing. In a prairie symphony. 
And then this is where he has some of his, like, delusional, surreal moments with the giant moon. He has this, like, glorious moment in the face of the giant moon of just, like, holy crap, I am alive. Right. This movie is about that life is good. Right. And as, like, scary and drudgeful as it can seem at times, it is ultimately good. Right. So, eventually... He gets so sunburned and dehydrated that he passes out. And this kind of brings us to point five. Luckily, around the time he passes out, Patricia comes too. And she's telling me he's an idiot for not having been drinking much himself and just focusing on her. But they're in luck because right around that time, they are discovered by Nathan Lane and the people of Woo. Because it is a movie, when someone gets lost at sea... They always end up where they are meant to go. Just as we saw in Dr. Doolittle. Exactly. Where they rode the trunks to the island with the pink snail and William Shakespeare the 10th. <sighs> if I could never think about that movie again, that would be a great time, Will. Just keep that in mind. I cannot make you that promise. But they are given a banquet and, you know, pampered as thanks for him <laughs> jumping into a volcano to save the island. Marry me. What? Chief! Chief, could you come up here, please? What the hell are you doing? I, I want him to marry us. I'm gonna jump in the volcano. So, marry me and then jump in the volcano. What? Could you marry us, please? Okay. I don't want to get married. What is the problem? You're afraid of the commitment? You're gonna have to love and honor me for about 30 seconds. You can't handle that? So, the leader of the... <laughs> Waponi is played by Abe Vigoda, who I think does a great job of just being totally exasperated with everything that's going on. Right, he's just like, this is insane, why do we have to send someone into the volcano? I don't get it. No one's willing to do it here. We had to sell out to a billionaire to get it done. And he's like, at the same time, skeptical of why Joe would want to do it, and also like, please just get it over with. Uh, also, just because we haven't actually pointed it out, the island of Waponi Woo is populated by a mixture of Polynesian islanders, but also a crash ship full of, like, Celtic druids, Romans, and Hebrews that was blown off course in the Roman Empire times. Yeah. So it's a nice mix. I mean, that's how you get Nathan Lane there, and also Abe Vigoda, and also Polynesians. Right. And they're really into orange soda, and they're bad at navigation. Those are their defining traits. And then they also wear a lot of colors. Primarily orange. I really enjoyed the scenes of them getting pampered, because for Joe, it's definitely more painful, and they're, like, just smashing bananas onto him. But then, for Patricia, she's getting, like, rubbed down with flowers gently, and having the time of her life. Yeah, it's a good contradiction. Right. But then they have the banquet, and he shows up in one of his tuxedos. It looks very cute. Which is awesome. He has, like, a hero reveal. He shows up at the top of this hill, backlit, wearing a tux. Aw, such a cutie. And they're going up. He's gonna jump in the volcano. But Patricia fights her way to the front and declares her love for Joe. She's like, you can't jump in. And he's like, I'm in love with you too, but your timing stinks. I'm gonna jump in this volcano. Yeah. Bizarre. He has decided to do it. And then she demands that the chief marries them, who really takes to it and just goes, you're married, just to get it over with still. But I also like that she persuades him by arguing, like, what are you afraid to get married for? Are you really worried about long-term commitment? (laughs) Oh, so good. And then she jumps in the volcano with him. Yeah. But, you know scientifically accurate to the core i'm sure the volcano erupts and blows them out into the ocean together and then waponi woo sinks into the ocean right very sad but the luggage survives and they get back on the luggage and 
Patricia asks him exactly what his diagnosis is. And then it comes out who his doctor is. She's like, a brain cloud sounds fake. That doctor is owned by my dad. He clearly set this up. You are not dying. And they just they basically decide that they are still together and sail off away from the things of man. And then they lived happily ever after. Now, it's worth noting, this movie originally, as written, had a different ending where Lloyd Bridges and the doctor show up at Waponi Woo on the Tweedledum because they came to make sure that Joe jumped in. And it's because of their presence that it leads to the revelation of the deception, which is much less interesting and much less charming than like the marriage at the top of the volcano and then they jump in. No, I like this ending much more than that. And speaking of endings, now that we have seen it all, do you find the romance of Joe versus the volcano believable? Um... Okay, Dee Dee, yes. Yes. Angelica, not really a romance, but sure. Patricia, mostly yes. It's kind of hard to judge because the movie takes place in a surreal reality where nothing is believable. Everything's heightened. So if we take that into account, within the unbelievable world, the romance then, I guess, becomes believable, but not completely. I mean, here's the deal. We've got two people. They meet each other. They get to know each other. They have heart-to-hearts about their lives and what they want on the boat. And they fall in love with each other. Yeah. All of that, pretty believable. The marriage is a little fast. And also, I don't know if they've been together long enough for her to commit suicide with him. That's quite a quite a jump. Into a volcano. Yes. So, ha ha ha. I feel like I'm at like a seven or an eight. Yeah, that I was leaning towards seven. All right. I can do that. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna give it an eight because I love this movie. <laughs> well, we have to remember that the ranking is not correlated to quality because we have given some bad movies some very high rankings. Yeah, I know. Uh, do you think that Joe or Patricia is dateable? Patricia, absolutely. She's fantastic. Joe, end of movie Joe, I think he grows to accept life is worth a living and becomes a much better person. Start of movie Joe, absolutely not. Start of movie Joe's a hard no. End of movie Joe, I feel like I want a little more confirmation that his hypochondria is not going to resurge. Which it does briefly. Right. But then so, hopefully goes I don't know that away. I want to put up with that. Yeah. Do you think they'll stay together? I kind of do. I mean, certainly within the heightened world of this movie, I definitely yes. think they would. Also, if they don't find land sometime soon, they won't survive long enough to break up. That's true. If you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, who would you choose? Okay. A lot of options here. The luggage salesman is an all-star. Uh, Marshall. May you live to be a thousand years old. Marshall, incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with Ossie Davis as Marshall. He's someone who values family and knows a thing or two about clothes. What more do you need? I think he is the clear choice. As much as there's a part of me that wants to say Patricia, I think it's got to be Marshall. Yeah. I mean, Patricia is played by Meg Ryan. It is very pretty. So that's always a plus. Right. Now, Mark. Yes. Many of the films that we have watched for this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Should Joe vs. the Volcano be adapted for the stage. Yes. I think this movie would be incredibly fun on stage. You could do a lot with sets because there's not too many and you could make each one very well on stage. And I think quite stylistically different. Right. And it's already heightened. They already talk like a musical. So you just have to add the songs. And this is a movie that already has a lot of music playing a big role in right i mean you can easily imagine marshall singing the song of him learning how to dress well and live well and like yeah the angelica number would be unbelievably funny and you've got the cowboy song sitting on the raft which is written by john patrick sham right and then patricia and joe have their love song at the top of the volcano 
And then it reprises as the final song after they announce their love on the raft. Well, I have not been able to figure out if they used the exact layout that you did, but it is worth noting that the Joe versus the Volcano musical had its premiere in San Diego in 2012. Oh my god, of course it did. I would love to see it. Me too, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't want to go to San Diego to see it. Also, hopefully theater survives in general. Uh, it'll... One way or another. All right. I think that's about it for Joe versus the Volcano. Now, before we can introduce next week's movie, I think we need to get in the weeds a little bit. Um, It's been two and a half years since we covered the film Shrek on this podcast. And at the time, we discussed the larger Shrek franchise, the four movies, the TV specials. The Shrekiverse. Right. And the unreleased Puss in Boots film. As we all know, a Puss in Boots movie was advertised. They put posters in movie theaters, but it never actually came out. Right. It's a fake movie. It was all a publicity stunt. We've had multiple people reach out to us on Twitter in the years since with the hashtag I've seen Puss in Boots to claim that they have seen Puss in Boots and telling us things about it. The thing is, it's clear that this is a Mandela effect type situation, like the Shaq Genie movie. Of course. Where people are remembering a movie they didn't actually see. We've been doing some research and we have found a theatrical Puss in Boots adaptation. I can't wait to talk about it. It's from 1988. It stars Christopher Walken as Puss in Boots. So again, don't go looking for a DreamWorks version because that does not exist. But next week, we will officially be able to say, hashtag I've seen Puss in Boots. Yes, Puss in Boots 1988 version. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod and email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Joe versus the Volcano? Be honest about where you are and what you want, because honesty is critical in allowing Dee Dee to say, I don't want to keep dating you, and in deepening the bond between Joe and Patricia. If you find someone you like, get trapped on a boat for six weeks because you'll have nothing else to do but fall in love. But don't, like, engineer the trap situation. No, don't actually trap them on a boat. Just, you know... Hope that that happens. Hope Just that an eccentric with them a lot until it occurs. <laughs> Hopefully, an eccentric billionaire sends you on a boat with that person for six weeks for no money. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger and I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.